Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Mr. Brown! Hi, I'm Detective Mark Dargis, LAPD. Can I ask what you have in that bag? The usual stuff. You know, I'm a flight attendant for Cabo Air. Can I uh, help out here? Who's this? Sorry, this is Special Agent Ray Nicolette with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Oh, really? May I see some ID? Yeah, sure. I started asking myself what the movie needed and who Jackie was. Do I have a choice? She's the smartest person in the story. Absolutely. And she can handle anything. And then I just said out loud to myself, I just said out loud, well, that sounds like Pam Greer. Hey, Ben here. We have some terrific bonus episodes this season, starting with more from my interview with Quentin Tarantino. Quentin, of course, is one of the most popular filmmakers in the world, a real cinephile and a true movie expert. We talked about Jackie Brown, exploitation cinema, and Quentin's first memories of Pam Greer. Enjoy. The first time I saw her and the first movie were the same night. It was 1972, and I was 10 years old. And I was staying with my grandmother at the time who lived in East L.A. She lived in Montebello. And there was this new movie. They had TV spots for it all over television, and every 10-year-old kid in the world wanted to see this movie. And that movie was The Doberman Gang. But a bank robbers to teach a bunch of Dobermans how to rob a bank. It, there's no way... As a kid, you can watch that TV spot and not, oh, I have to see the Doberman Gang. Gotta go. Yeah. The Doberman Gang. Six savage Dobies with a thirst for cold cash that leaves back. So my grandmother was going to take me out to uh, the movies that night. And she goes, what do you want to go see? I go, I want to see the Doberman Gang. So she goes and takes me to the Doberman Gang. Now, it just happens to be playing at, like, the theater that's the closest to her, which was my favorite theater in my entire life. It was this theater called the Garmar that was in Montebello, California. And so we go to the Garmar. And so we sit down to see the Doberman Gang. Before the Doberman Gang starts, there's a series of trailers. And one of the trailers is for the Big Bird Cage. Meet the girls of the Big Bird Cage, enslaved to every cruel whim and desire of a ruthless madman. So watch the Doberman Gang. They're co-featured that played all over town was a Filipino movie called The Twilight People, which was uh, the famous Filipino director, Eddie Romero, which was, he had kind of done a version of this story a few times, but this was his biggest version of it. It was sort of a Filipino version of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Test tube terrors evolved from From the In that movie, Pam Greer was in it, playing the Panther Girl. 
and you see the Twilight people, the thing you remember is the Panther Girl. <laughs> you had a good grandmother. Yeah, she was cool. Yeah. And then the third time I saw Pam, this is all just very Los Angeles kind of stuff, all right? The third time I saw Pam Greer was because the big birdcage was about to come out and she was uh, making an appearance on, on television. She was making an appearance at the Olympic Auditorium during the local uh, roller derby game, all right, with the L.A. Thunderbirds. The Thunderbirds out three points, and look at John Drew. She joined the commentators, and she talked about the big birdcage coming out, and it was, she had the big old afro, and she was really, oh, hey, like, hey, I remember her. That's the girl from the trailer. <laughs> so you watched, and you saw her on the broadcast. Yeah, I watched her on, like, the local broadcast on Channel 5. Yeah. The way you tell that story would indicate that she made an impression. Yeah, she made a big impression. And then it was just like a series of, you know, one TV spot after another. You know, first Coffee, then Bucktown, then Foxy Sheba Brown, baby. then Sheba Baby, then Friday Foster. You know, it was just like a Black Mama, White Mama. Yeah, so the trailers for all of them. They blanketed the local television with those trailers. Pam Greer, that one chick hit squad who creamed you as coffee, is back to do a job on the mob. I'd like you to tr think about if, if there's a way to answer this one as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old boy as these things come out. And then also now as a movie director, what makes her stand out on screen? Well, that's interesting. Well, there's almost two different aspects. I mean, it's one thing to watch the movie Coffee and respond to her performance and respond to the story and respond to her journey. The rest of her starring vehicles aren't the greatest in the world, but Coffee is so great it makes up for all the rest of them. Coffee just works. What's almost interesting talking about from a perspective of a 10, 11, 12-year-old is I wasn't seeing the movies. I was just seeing this image of Pam Greer and what this image represented as far as these TV spots and these posters and these newspaper advertisements projected was as this beautiful black woman with a beautiful round afro with a sawed-off shotgun that was just kicking ass, you know, just like a full-on, no-holds-barred action hero. And the thing about it was there wasn't a white equivalent to that. Raquel Welsh would do an action movie from time to time, but she wasn't like coffee, all right? She's not blowing guys' heads off with a sawed-off shotgun. The poster isn't just her, you know, with a big weapon. Actually, the Pam Greer TV spots were more action-packed than the Jim Brown TV spots, and they were pretty action-packed. The baddest one-chick hit squad that ever hit town. Coffee. Even before I got to know who the woman was and got to know who she was as an actress and even got to appreciate the stories, if you just compile it with the TV spots and the movie posters and the one sheets and the soundtrack albums and the newspaper advertisements, it was this image of Pam in what always looked like a bikini to some degree or another with that big afro and a sawed-off shotgun. So I saw a lot of R-rated movies at that time, but you still had to kind of talk your parents into doing it or they had to, or it had to be something they wanted to see. Yeah. And I don't think coffee was necessarily something my mom necessarily wanted to see. But uh, around 77, 78, living in the South Bay area, and I started going to this uh, theater in Carson called the Carson Twin Cinema. And one of the things about the Carson Twin Cinema is it showed, you know, it showed all the exploitation movies the week that they came out and usually the big, the big A movies <laughs> the week they left town. <laughs> but one of the things that they knew is that there were certain titles that they could just book and then everyone would show up. 
So, you know, even though the movie came out in like 72 or whatever, it was 73. 73, yeah. 73. Uh, you know, it's like 77. And they're booking Coffee with the Mac as a double feature. And it was, especially on a double feature with the Mac, that was one of my favorite double features of all time. That was one of my favorite times ever going to a movie. And it was one of those weird situations where it was like, I built this movie up in my mind a lot because of the impactful TV spots and the enticing poster. You were in a position to have it disappoint you. Yeah, and there's very few movies that could have as impactful a poster, an impactful a trailer, and then have you sit on it with anticipation, a little boy's anticipation, for six or seven years. (laughs) And then have no worries that the movie will absolutely deliver when you actually do watch it. Well, that's coffee. It just delivers. It, I, I don't want to go too crazy on the idea that Coffee is a great movie. There's a lot of – it's very amateurish, and Jack Hill was exactly where he belonged, all right, when it came to making movies. I do think that Coffee is one of the most entertaining movies ever made. It's one of the funnest revenge movies ever made. It's just entertaining. So you want to play with knives, huh? Well, you picked the wrong player. It's it's a blast. What the hell is going on here? It's funny. It has a thing that a lot of the other Jack Hill movies has, where it's like, there's a lot of laughs in it. And there's, you're having a bit of an internal struggle while you're watching it in the first 20, 30 minutes about the laughs. So you're like, okay, am I laughing at the movie or am I laughing with the movie? Mo- and I suspect most audiences might think they were laughing at the movie. But then it, the story starts working. You start caring about the Pam Greer character. And about midway through, you're like, no, 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 no. I, I, I think I'm laughing with the movie. No, no, no. Oh, and, and actually, that was supposed to be funny. No, no, this is supposed to be. No, this is actually genuinely witty. This is not risable. This is genuinely witty. And then just the way it rolls everything into everything else, all right, in that whole last 20 minutes, the, the rampage she goes on is just so cinematically effective. It's just so exciting and you just you're in love with her you love her she can do no wrong you are so rooting for her. and so was the audience and just like just cheered just cheered like at every high moment she had in that whole last 20 minutes coffee baby i'm glad to see you i knew they weren't really gonna do it oh i ain't here because they didn't try lover why don't you just let me have the thing? No! Let me jump then, because you're the perfect person to ask. You know, I, I agree completely. This is how you write. There's this hesitancy in the beginning, mm-hmm. know, whether it's the first 20, 25 minutes, and you're not, right, you don't quite know what you're reacting to, right? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. is it authentic? Yeah. And then you buy in at some point. I don't know when that moment is, but mm-hmm. all of a sudden you realize that you're into yeah. it and you care. It is hard to know how much you are allowed to enjoy black exploitation films sometimes and you have seemed like you've figured it out well i've never given i've never i've never <laughs> I do, thought that I, I suspect <laughs> i suspect you yeah maybe you, maybe that. you wrestle a little less <laughs> I, I didn't wrestle that much with that <laughs> so how should we look at them how should thoughtful america look at these movies in the case of coffee particular there's two ways, and I don't think you have to have any qualms about this whatsoever. Pam Greer is to one degree or another, as far as where I'm coming from, is she's a bit of, you know, she's sort of like 
the Marlena Dietrich of, of the 70s. On one hand, they don't have anything to do with each other, but she's always been the closest equivalent yeah, no. that I come up with when it comes to a superstar persona of an actress that carries, you know, again, especially if you're talking about the Joseph von Sternberg movies, one after another, after another, after another. So you're watching the movie that officially starts that, that starts this entertaining and exciting persona. But also, I think along with Rolling Thunder, it's the best revenge-o-matic movie ever made. There's never been... A, it shouldn't work as good as it does, but it does. And it's just it's just so damn entertaining at the end when she wipes these cats out. Violence has never been presented on one hand serious, but with just such a giggle without it being stupid and without it turning into camp. And I don't think coffee falls into camp. But then the other thing about the black exploitation stuff is, yeah, it's got the great music and the great clothes, and King George looks fantastic, and is it is a, a pimp leisure wear, and the afros and the Cadillacs, and you know, they hang out at the Total Experience at the very beginning, which was the big black nightclub in Los Angeles at the time. What what's not to love? King George, my main man. George. Coming up on The Plot Thickens. I want it to sound like a Pam Greer movie. I want it to have a Pam Greer opening credit sequence. I want the poster to reflect a Pam Greer poster. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. To the extent that there was controversy about black exploitation films as we moved out of them, do you think that held Pam back a little bit? At the end of the day, I think it stopped her for getting her rightful props as, as a bankable actress because it was easy to marginalize the black exploitation actors. As well, that, this is this thing. They're not trying for a crossover. They, it, was just, it was an easy way to marginalize them. She should have been given credit as, no, this is a major actress that when you put her name on a poster, people go and see it all over America and, not, and sometimes all over the world. And she was never given that proper respect. It was like, oh, she's the star of this genre. When the genre peters out, that's it for her. Now she's just stuck being an actress. So then let's jump forward then. How did you meet her? When did you see her in person for the first time? Oh, the first time I, uh, I met her was when she came in to audition for uh, Pulp Fiction. For what role? Uh, she was auditioning for the role that uh, Rosanna Arquette ended up playing. Well, it's so important why you keep with a shot. I don't know. Stop bothering me. Listen, what are you looking for? That girl's going to die in our carpet. You're never going to find anything in this. And it was one of those things where it was, if, well, I didn't think she was going to get it, but she, she could have gotten it, you know? So, you okay. thought, right, that you knew. Yeah, so I told the casting director, let's see if she'll, she's available to come in. But I didn't think it was necessarily work out, but I just wanted to meet her. I wanted to meet her, and then we, we would have the scene, and I would have the fun of hearing Sam, Pam Greer say my lines. And so she walks in the room, and... Back then, I don't do this anymore, but back then when I would make a movie, 
my office would just be completely decorated with, with po movie posters on every inch of the walls and video store standees and it just every, every POP is like a boy's bedroom. All right. Every, every time I started a new office for a movie and Pam had some of the best posters. So there was like a ton of Pam Grip posters all over the office. But So you didn't put them in because Pam was coming well, in. Well, no, that was the thing. So Pam came in there and she's, you know, uh, uh, she came walking in and I'm like, acting like a geek. Oh, here's Queen Greer. All right. Has just entered the building. All right. All hail the queen. And then she goes, okay, so tell me, did you put all these posters up because you knew I was coming in? And I go, actually, I almost took them down because I knew you were coming in. <laughs> <laughs> and naturally I had her sign a bunch of them before she left. <laughs> Take me to the moment then. Are you thinking of her when you read Rum Punch? Well, it's interesting. Okay, so the movie came about because I had read the galleys of Rum Punch uh, before it actually got published. Uh, they sent me the galleys and I read it and I kind of made it a movie in my mind, but I still was had to do Pulp Fiction and everything. So I, yeah, I just put it away. That was that. I figured somebody else would do it and then they didn't. And then it became a situation after Pulp Fiction well, we were going to have some access to some of the Elmer Leonard books, and one of them might be Rum Punch. And so I brought up to uh, another director I knew that there was this cool project that I might be involved in. Maybe they would like to read the book and consider it. And that director said yes. And then for whatever reason, I decided, well, let me read the book again before I give it to them so I can, like, jog my memory about everything. And I read it again. And then the thing is, as I read it, like that movie that popped into my head about two years earlier just came back all of a sudden. It was just right there as if it had just been sitting in a room. And I realized, I thought, hey, I think this is what I want to do next. And so I didn't give it to that person. I decided to do it. So now I read it a third time, you know, thinking about how I would make it. And in the book, the character's not called Jackie Brown. Her name is Jackie Birch. And she's a, a white lady who's, you know, however old she's supposed to be. 51, 47, whatever. So I'm reading it and now I'm making it, in, now Now I'm actually actively trying to make it a movie into my mind. And I'm like, okay, well, who could be Jackie Birch? And so I'm thinking of the different, because she's blonde in this, in this story. So I'm thinking of some of the different blonde actresses that could fit around. This is a grown up role. Yeah, it's a grown up role. And so, and naturally you can imagine some of the four or five I probably thought about it. I was thinking about them. And, and then I started, asking myself what the movie needed and who Jackie was. And I go, well, she's a woman on the late side of 40s who's, she's an absolute knockout, but she's on the late side of her 40s and she looks like it, but in a good way, uh, just makes her look adult, makes her look formidable. And she's the smartest person in the story, absolutely. And she can handle anything. And then I just said out loud to myself, I just said out loud, well, that sounds like Pam Greer. And then once I started thinking of it as a Pam Greer movie, as a black exploitation movie, and not just a black exploitation movie, but a Pam Greer movie, but not coming from a 1972, 73, 74 black exploitation feeling, but coming from a real person situation. This is the 90s. And this is real. And the music can be wah-wah, uh, thunkity-thunkity. You know, and, and my bad guy can be flamboyant and everything. But this takes place in a real world. 
And I even like the idea of even Jackie Brown. I'm, look, she's not coffee, but the idea that like a coffee or a Foxy Brown has lived a life. And this is the life she's li- and the life she's lived has led her to this. And now we're picking up the story 20 years later. So I imagine pretty much close to the time you say Pam Greer to yourself, you also think Jackie Brown. Yeah, yeah. Well, immediately. And then I thought, well, it, it was like the next thought. All right. You know, and then the idea, well, Foxy Brown, Jackie Brown, well, I'm going to make it a black exploitation thing. I'm going to make it sound like, I want it to sound like a Pam Greer movie. I want right. it to have a Pam Greer opening credit sequence. I want the poster to reflect a Pam Greer poster. Okay, ready? Everybody settle and action. Pam Greer is Jackie Brown. Pam Greer is Jackie Brown. Pamela Greer. Is Jackie Brown. She tells this story of seeing you mm-hmm. uh, while she's driving and you're in Hollywood mm-hmm. talking to somebody on the sidewalk. Well, she, she was with her boyfriend at the time and I knew him too. And so she stopped and she goes, hey, Quentin, how you doing? You know? And so we're talking and I'm, I'm writing this for her, but I haven't told her about it. And she's, I go, so how's everything going? She goes, oh, everything's going great. And I go, hey, look, Got this thing that I'm writing for you. I think think it's going to be really exciting for you. I think you're going to find it really special. She goes, well, I'm doing good stuff now. I'm in, like, I've got a good part in Mars Attacks. I've got a good part in Escape from L.A. I'm working with John Carpenter, Tim Burton. And I'm just like, fuck all that shit. <laughs> that ain't shit. Wait till you see what I got for you. <laughs> She's okay, we'll see, all right? And I still have, like, a few months more to go on the script, all right? But but don't give her any clue whatsoever. I don't talk. She has no idea this. She has no idea this is coming down the pike. None whatsoever. And then so finally I finish it, and I call her up. I go, okay, so Pam, I finished finally that script that I was telling you about. So I want to send it to you. So you got to give me your address. And so she gives me her address. I don't even send it Federal Express. I send it like with stamps and put it, drop it in a mailbox. And she gets it and opens it up. It's called Jackie Brown. And then there's the only thing, there's no letter, no nothing. (laughs) Just a post-it on the script that says, look at Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) And And so she reads it. All right. And then like I call her up like three days later or something like that. And she goes, okay, so what part are you thinking about me for? I go, didn't you read the post-it? It said, look at Jackie. (laughs) Who do you think? Well, you mean Jackie Brown? Well, how many other Jackies are there in the script? Yes, Jackie Brown. (laughs) Well, I didn't think you meant the fucking lead. And I go, well, of course. It's, I'm, can't, you don't recognize yourself on the page? Maybe I'm wrong. I said, no, 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 no. I, I see my, I just didn't think. I'm sorry. I thought maybe Melanie. I don't know. Because she's, I didn't know what you were doing. <laughs> Your story aligns very uh, similarly to her version <laughs> of the story, except she says it was a lot longer than three days because she didn't open it for a while. <laughs> and she had to pay the postage due. <laughs> like there was like, it, and it was something crazy. Like it was 39 cents Short. Yeah. <laughs> when you were finished with the script, were you anxiously awaiting uh, to hear from her? Or did you think there's no way she's not going to do this? Well, oh, I knew she was going to do it. No, I was I was anxiously waiting because I've been, you know, this had been this little private present that I've been writing for Pam for like three or four months. And so, yeah, 
you know, I was happy it was present day and she was going to open it up and I was going to hear what she had to say. Then uh, you, how long before you get to work, before you start production? I think by the time I sent her the script, we, I, we'd already opened offices and everything. So it's like, yeah, within a few months. In the strange scenario where she says, I don't know, I don't really see myself in there. Does the movie go forward or is it just like, no, this Jackie Brown was really written for Pam Greer. There's No, I, I, I was very committed to it at that point in time. I wouldn't have do that. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have just, I wouldn't put it away. But you got the actor you want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, and uh, and how was she as an actress? I mean, this is, she had not done any kind of role with this much depth, this much range, this much completeness as a person. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, okay, she was terrific. Pam was a very seasoned performer by the time that I worked with her. You know, she had been working for twenty years straight. And even you know, you know, people are like, oh, too bad she you know didn't stay a star at a certain point. But she worked all the goddamn time. I mean, she worked all the time. And so she became a very, very seasoned performer. But if you look at the wealth of roles that she did, whether it's on Miami Vice or in Class of 1999 or, or they did these different kind of movies that she would do, she didn't do a whole lot of scenes. That's just her sitting around talking like the scene with Max Cherry at the breakfast table. Right. You know, that's not the kind of things that she did. Well, I've flown over 7 million miles and I've been waiting on people for 20 years. And after my bus, the best job I could get was with Cabo Air, which is the worst job you could get in this industry. You know, I make 16000 a year, plus retirement benefits that ain't worth a damn. And with this arrest hanging over my head, Max, I'm scared. And if I lose this job, I got to start all over again, and I ain't got nothing to start over with. I'll be stuck with whatever I can get. More from my conversation with Quentin Tarantino after the break. I think I was a little over-influenced by the halogen lamps at Ikea. I had actually just gone to Ikea and bought one or two of them. Like, wow, these are amazing, all right? And so I go out and get like five other ones. So what kind of directing did she need to respond and sort of become the actress that you needed to be for that part? You know, frankly, at the end of the day, I think it's just, you know, slow down. We've got time to do the scene right. You don't have to rush. We don't have to do this. We have to do it. We're fine. Just take your time. Okay, let's try it this way. Let's try it that way. Don't worry about trying to get to it too fast. Let's just, just talk and let's see what happens. You know, and then they do the scene a couple of times and you give them a little bit more direction about something they could be thinking about or whatever. And then it just kind of just develops. Ever been tempted? What? Put one of these in my pocket. Mm -hmm. If I did, I'd have to give one to you, wouldn't I? Of course not. She really is surrounded in that movie by actors. You said, you know, I was instantly caught when you said, slow down. Because, I mean, Robert Forster, Sam Jackson, Robert De Niro, they're all slow, yeah, right? Yeah. In the best yeah, possible absolutely. way, right? Yeah, they're not, well, yeah, they know they're in movies and they know that there is a certain responsibility, but they don't think that their job is simply to tell the story. And uh, they think their job is to bring character. And the characters don't know the story. But if you act in exploitation movies for 30 years, that's not your job. Your job is to tell the story. <laughs> your job is to be the bad guy. Your job is to be the cool guy. Your job is to be the sexy girl. <laughs> your job is to be the, the goofy sidekick. <laughs> and you're telling the story constantly every time you open your mouth. And 
you're also times working with directors that don't understand what good acting is. So they want you to yell the lines. They want they want that vein on your forehead to pop out when you're screaming this or that and the other. And they want you to push it, push it, push it. Because to them, that's good acting. But that's not good acting. But you do it for 20 years. And then all of a sudden, that is acting. Now, that's not Pam. I'm not saying, but, but that is a problem that happens when actors have been doing exploitation movies for 20 years. Right, when you're doing movies in the Philippines shot in four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Right. I like those movies, but yes, that is a I problem. Got, right. But, but the moment-to-moment -moment work suffers. The let's find it as we do it aspect is not there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat. What the hell's wrong with you, Jackie? Shut the fuck up and don't you move. So that scene before with Ordell and the gun, mm -hmm. and that gun is sort of, she talked about that, how the manner in which you shot at the angle of her body so mm -hmm, that we yeah. never see... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she takes the gun out of the purse. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually, well, that was the thing. That was, I think it was a little over-influenced by the halogen lamps at Ikea, all right? Because <laughs> I had actually, I think, just gone to Ikea and bought, like, like bought one or two of them. Like, wow, these are amazing, all right? And so I go out and get, like, five other ones. And then I was walking around the apartment staging out the scene, and I just kept doing it with the halogen lamps. Like, these are awesome. It's like having a light board, all right, for your movie. And one of the things about, uh, I, was, I was really into the realism of Jackie Brown. And so one of the things that was important to me that even when we found the apartment that Jackie Brown lived in, uh, I knew how much Jackie Brown made a year. So Jackie had to be able to afford that apartment or I wouldn't have shot there. And so to find a, an apartment she could afford that, that would be big enough to actually put a crew in there was not easy, but we did. But, you know, those those halogen lamps were pretty cheap. So it was like, that made sense that that would be what Jackie would have. And so then we just hooked him up with movie lighting. <laughs> so Ordell could just be turning them down and she could be turning them up and Ordell turns them down again. And then, you know, we told her to sit over here, stand over there. So like the light would hit her uh, screwdriver in a big way. And so the orange would kind of like come out and just, yeah, that was the first time I'd ever did a scene all with the lights off and it, I, I loved it. <laughs> Any surprises from Pam that you didn't expect when she uh, shows up and starts to work? I don't know if there was any super big surprises, but at the same time, though, like, I'm still kind of starting my career. So I'm, it's only my third movie. So, like, Pam actually has far more experience on a set than I do. And she was a joy. She was a very good actress. I thought she was perfect for the character. She got along with everybody terrifically. Everybody on the crew loved her. Everybody in the movie loved her. And she was a real leading lady. She knew that this was a good opportunity for her. And she was tickled pink. She was like, oh, can I go home early? No, she didn't want to go home early. She didn't want this thing to ever fucking end. All right. She was having a ball and, uh, and she appreciated it. And she knew to lead. There's a thing about when you cast a lead actor, there is a, th there's a thing about a lead actor. They need to lead. They need to lead by example. They are the lead of the film. They kind of, you know, they're sort of like the director a little bit. They need to set up an example. What they do matters. Yeah, what they do really matters. And they need to kind of help lead this production. They need to give it a, a, a true north to everybody on the crew and everybody involved in the movie. And she offered that with her sincerity, with her charming personality, her gratefulness. And then also the entire crew watched her rise to, to some wonderful heights that I think Pam was even surprised that she reached. You're taking a hell of a chance, kid. Not really. If he finds it, I'll say Mr. Walker put it in there. And I didn't know anything about it, like the Coke. Well, then you're out. 
you get nothing. Yeah, but I'm not in jail, and at least I try. So why wasn't Pam Greer a bigger star? Why isn't she a bigger star now? Pam is kind of a legend, you know. She's doing all right. I mean, like— uh, No, no, she's definitely doing all right. Yeah, yeah, she, you, know, she, you know, she's a working actress, and she's been a working actress for a very, very, very— Look, I do think that Hollywood was a bit contemptuous about the black exploitation craze, even though they partook in it. You know, MGM released a bunch of movies, and Warner Brothers released a bunch of movies. But when it sort of ran its course, they couldn't be done with it fast enough, almost. And I think that's just very, very short-sighted when it comes to Hollywood, when it comes to, like, the way they made a star of Pam, you know? And AIP could have kept on casting her and stuff. Maybe it didn't have to be slightly less exploitation y but you know, she was a star. She was, you know, she, she was a star like Raquel Welsh was a star. And I think she should have been treated that way. What's, uh, how would you assess her legacy? Well, it's actually interesting because if you had asked me that in 97, when I was doing Jackie Brown, it would have been all about those early years you know, the Foxy Brown and the coffee and the, what she meant to me and what she meant to culture and she what she meant to the zeitgeist and, like I said, those posters and those album covers and all that stuff. Uh, but since then, Pam has actually survived that aspect of her legacy and has proven to be a very terrific actress and has worked with a lot of really, really good people. And it just is like when she was on The L Word, you know, I watched every episode of that. She was just this fantastic character. And, you know, to some degree or another, you could almost say that Pam's triumph has been, to some degree, outliving her super cool, super sexy black exploitation persona and has just become this fantastic actress that has had a 40-year career, if not longer. Yeah, I don't think she gets there without Jackie Brown. Yeah. I put her on a good road. <laughs> I put her on a good road. And she proceeded to keep driving down that road from that point on. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying The Plot Thickens, why not leave a review or tell a friend? Tell an enemy. Tell your parents. Tell everyone. It's not a secret. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more episodes of The Plot Thickens. <laughs>